All right, before we get to the show, here at NPR, we want to better understand who is listening to these podcasts and what role podcasts like this one play in your life. So help us out and take a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. All one word. This takes less than 10 minutes. It really helps support this show. npr.org slash podcast survey. All one word. Thank you so much. Okay, here's the show. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Daddy. This week on the show, retail columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, Sarah Holzak, and Washington Post reporter, Dan Zach. All right, let's start the show. Zach Attack. Oh. <laughs> hey, y'all from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to my listeners and to my guests. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Sam. Hey, good to be here. Here is Sarah Halzak, retail columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and Dan Zak, feature writer for The Washington Post. And I am playing for you both a country trap record called Old Town Road by a rapper named Lil Nas X. We're going to play a bit right now. Yeah, I'm going to take my horse to the old town road. I'm going to ride till I can't no more. I'm going to take my horse to the old town road. So my question for both of you, Dan and Sarah, is this a country song? I got the horses in the back. Horse stock is attached. I don't know. It really uh, seems to be walking the line for me. Riding on a horse, ha, you can whip your horse. I've been in a valley, you ain't been up off that porch. Dan? You know I'm the worst person to ask about this. <laughs> I, I think country music is a state of mind, so if you want it to be country, it's country. Th- this is the correct answer, Dan, because this has been the big question about this song since it became a hit. So this song, Old Town Road, Uh, became this viral sensation on TikTok, the video editing app. All the kids would make videos of themselves dancing to this song, and then country radio began to play it. Um, And after making an appearance on the Billboard country music chart for one week at number 19, the powers that be pulled this song off the Billboard country charts because they said it's not country enough. Everyone got mad. There were questions about race and who gets to be the gatekeeper for country because this rapper is a black guy. Um, But now there seems to be a happy ending. A stalwart of country music, Billy Ray Cyrus, has recorded a remix of this song with Lil Nas X. We have it right here. Now that's country. There's no question anymore. I wish you guys could see Dan's face right now (laughs) listening to this hot jam. There's only one gatekeeper I trust when it comes to country music, and that's Taylor Swift. Okay, I thought you were going to say Dolly Parton, and I was going to let you have that one, but wow, wow, wow. Anyway, I think the entire Cyrus family can get an invite to the cookout. They seem cool. Anyway, enough of that. Dan's like, please stop playing that song. (laughs) Anyways, we're going to start the show as we do every week. I'm going to ask each of my guests to describe their week of news in only three words. Uh, Dan, Zach, you're going to go first because you spent some time recently with a very famous politician, former politician. I did. I, I spent a couple weeks ago, spent a couple days with uh, former Vice President Al Gore. Maybe you remember wow, him. I do. How old is he now? He just turned 71 last week. Okay. He just had a birthday. Um, and so my three words would be preach brother Gore. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> and I can tell you why if you want to hear why. I do. Um, or we can say, okay. So I'm I'm spending some of this year kind of finding non-traditional ways to write about climate change. So mm-hmm. what's more non-traditional than Albert Gore Jr.? Um, <laughs> in post-inconvenient truth time, he's been training people en masse to be climate leaders. Uh, over the past several years, he's trained 19,000 people all around the world, um, educated them on the climate science they need to know, hmm. and then uh, with other experts and activists, trained them to be active at whatever level they want to be active in. And so I was just in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago because he did a training in Atlanta for 2,000 people, three huh. solid days of the Al Gore show. Um, did you did you sit through all three days of the Al Gore show? I did. I sat through all three days. And day one incorporated his two and a half hour slideshow. He's still doing the slideshow. He's slide still show. doing the slideshow. But it's okay. an aggressively long slideshow. It's show. so aggressive. But there's something different about Al Gore, at least the public persona of Al Gore, hmm. um, at least as I see it these days. And it's the reason I chose those three words, preach brother Gore, um, hmm. is because he is at least in Atlanta, uh, presenting himself more as like a civil rights leader. Well, and this is the thing that you point out. This is a thing that Gore is doing and the entire Green movement is doing. They're tying their mission and their cause to racial justice. And they're talking to black and brown people in a way that the climate movement, I think, hasn't been doing before. Like Al Gore was in a black church. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, I went to Atlanta, and sure, there was the two-and-a-half-hour slideshow where Al Gore is very professorial, but then that night was an interfaith service at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Wow. Where you have Al Gore giving a 20-minute fiery sermon like he's a Baptist preacher. Um, You know, if the world could see this Al Gore, they would think, I think their estimation of him would change. Well, that's the question. Will the world see Al Gore and this issue take the spotlight in the campaign for 2020? Do we know yet if the candidates that are running for president are going to make this a center point of their campaigns? Well, I think they are. You have uh, someone like Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington State, who is that's his issue. He's like, hmm. I'm running for president. Wait, and, he's running for president? Yeah. Well, I don't know if he's declared <laughs> so yet. He's exploring. I guess we're all exploring, <laughs> we can really. Track. <laughs> I'm exploring it. Yeah. Um, uh, and he's like, I am the climate change candidate. You have, um, and you have other candidates saying this is one of the top issues of our time. I mean, y- Americans with greater and greater certainty uh, believe a that climate change is happening, and clear that, majorities. Yeah, 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 majorities. And b, uh, you know, we are doing something to cause it or exacerbate it. So, I mean, the trend is very much in. Uh, the public and politicians catching up with what Al Gore has been saying for, you know, 35 years. And it seems to make a lot of sense to try to connect this issue that can feel kind of theoretical and abstract with more personal, urgent issues, right? When we think about the things that have been animating the political conversation generally lately, LGBT rights issues, Black Lives Matter, gun safety, these are all issues that are very personal. So to try Mm -hmm. to make climate change more that way seems very strategic and sensible. That's precisely it. You know, I talk to a lot of people who love Al Gore, but criticized the way he approached this for years. You know, he was he had the slideshow and he was kind of flattening the issue into charts and graphs and he was visiting glaciers and and all this stuff. And and people are like, why isn't he talking about food security or about, you know, uh, industrial factories in poor communities and things that kind of have a bearing like a real time bearing in people's day to day lives. And I mean, my observation in Atlanta is that is exactly what he is doing now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I have three words for you both. They are who to blame. 
and I'm talking about the ongoing fallout of the opioid crisis and the vast number of lawsuits across the country against big pharmaceutical companies that produce the opioids that led to hundreds of thousands of deaths. But what I'm really interested in this week is how some of those lawsuits have shifted from just suing companies like Purdue to suing the Sackler family. They own Purdue Pharma. They made it a big company. And now they're facing personal lawsuits against themselves uh, from people whose lives have been touched by addiction and um, like drugs made by the company. So we know uh, that Purdue made a lot of money from making OxyContin. But this Monday, lawyers for the Sackler family asked a judge in Massachusetts to toss a suit that was asking the Sackler family for millions in damages. This comes after Purdue and the Sacklers reached a big settlement with the state of Oklahoma for $270 million. And then there are even more suits out there. There are something like 1,600 suits brought by cities and counties that have all been bundled together. It's kind of staggering. Yeah, $270 million is a whole lot of dollars. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And so Oklahoma is saying we're going to use this money for treatment here in our state. But it's going to be more of this to come, Sarah. Yeah. And to me, it's it's kind of a reminder that I think in the latest phase of the opioid crisis, so much of the focus has been on fentanyl. Right. And mm-hmm. um, then that brings the focus to law enforcement and what they can be doing to uh, keep it out of our borders and to, you know, when their first responders uh, have the equipment and resources that they need. But this wave of suits is such a reminder that this is so much deeper than that. that there mm-hmm. are so many more layers uh, to this problem and to solving it. Yeah. Well, and these suits remind me that as a society, we really haven't figured out who we want to blame or make responsible for this crisis. Is it the companies? Is it the Sackler family? Is it the government agencies that approved these drugs years ago? No one really knows who they want to really take responsibility for this. And in the vacuum of responsibility, you see things like this, all these suits. You know, as you mentioned, the Sackler family name is on buildings and art galleries and has been a public benefit. And to know that some of that wealth was grew out of kind of the exploitation of people and their addictions, um, then it becomes kind of a a wider problem, I think, that we have to confront, uh, at least intellectually, every time you see their name on some sort of philanthropic venture. Um, You know, what does it mean that the that the money behind that was born of 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 this kind of enterprise? Yeah. 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 Uh, Sarah, do you have three words? I sure do. Uh, My three words are retail goes green. And by that, I am not referring to retailers getting more environmentally sustainable. Oh. I am referring to them joining the so-called green rush. Uh, Big name chains are starting to sell products that are made with cannabis. Uh Oh, yes, 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 they are. Yeah. So the clearest example of this came from Walgreens, the big drugstore chain. Wait, hold on. Walgreens is going to be selling me cannabis? Yeah. So Walgreens has said uh, that in 1,500 of their stores, they are going to be carrying lotions and creams and sprays that contain a compound called CBD. Mm-hmm. Now, CBD is not the compound in the cannabis plant that gets you high. Okay. That would be THC. Uh, so CBD is the one that's associated with wellness type properties like being anti-inflammatory. And Walgreens has said they think there's going to be consumer demand for this product and they're going to start stocking it. And wow. it's 
yeah, it's this real moment of mainstreaming and validation for this nascent industry. And it comes on the heels of some other similar actions in this direction. So, yep. So one of Walgreens' key competitors, CVS, said recently it will be carrying CBD-infused products in 800 stores. Oh, my God. And, yeah, it it gets crazier. Uh, DSW, the big box shoe store, is going to be carrying CBD-infused foot creams. Stop it. Okay, okay, hold on. DSW. It's good yes. CBD foot cream. I know, right? Dan, will you buy that? Probably. <laughs> Why not, right? I just need CVS and Walgreens to have a dozen eggs whenever I walk in there. Because <laughs> the one near me is always out. Is always out of stock. Yeah, they got to fix those retail 101 problems for you first, huh, Sam? Yeah. How much of these companies rushing into a new untested field like CBD is a product of the economy continuing to be so strong. We just got jobs numbers out Friday morning. The economy added, what, another 190 or so thousand jobs. Uh, A lot of the indicators for the market just look really good. Does the strength of the economy allow a Walgreens to say, yeah, let's take a chance on CBD? So I think it's less about that Hmm. and more about the fact that the retail industry generally has its back up against a wall right Uh, now. Surely you've heard this term, the retail apocalypse, right? That e-commerce is on the rise. Stores and malls are closing everywhere, and the remaining retailers are trying to figure out desperately, how do we keep shoppers coming to our stores? How do we make good use of this store portfolio that we have? Mm -hmm. And introducing novel new products that are exciting to consumers that make them say, I'm going to get off my couch and stop binge watching this show for a sec and actually (laughs) walk my feet into into a store. They are desperate for newness and for exciting new ways to bring people into their doors. Could this go wrong? Could these corporations overestimate demand? Are are there some cautionary tales here? Yeah, it could certainly go wrong. Uh, There's a lot. This is a wild, wild west. We don't know exactly how big uh, the addressable market is for these products. A lot of the uh, health things around them are untested. Um, Mm -hmm. And also, you know, I cover the entire consumer landscape. So that includes all sorts of uh, beauty companies and personal care products. And I'm going to tell you, that (laughs) sector is as driven by fads as fashion is, right? Think about, you know, things like those stupid crystal face rollers. Uh, what, wait, wait, wait. What is that? It's like a... It's It kind of looks like a rolling pin. I'm surprised you're not familiar with it living in L.A. as, as know, you are. That would seem to be a mecca of face rollers. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and these things go boom and bust really quickly in the beauty and skincare business. And CBD is all the rage right now. And I mm-hmm. do think there is some risk that this is something that is kind of a solar flare that is really hot and mm-hmm. then flames out. The way to guarantee a market for CBD is to find some way to get it on Goop and have Gwyneth Paltrow talk about it, because if she likes it, people will like it. The masses will get on board. The masses will get on board. (laughs) All right, coming up, we're going to talk pop music. Uh, You may have noticed that over the last few years, pop songs have gotten much shorter, like a minute or so shorter than they were just a few years ago. We will tell you why and how that is changing the very way that pop songs are written. That is after the break. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. With a franchise network of highly trained agents and advanced marketing tools, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services network members aim to provide something more than just real estate. They think beyond the next transaction and build relationships based on your long-term goals to ensure you'll get all the value that home brings year after year, home after home. All that more they do, 
That's home services. Start your home search at BerkshireHathawayHS.com. We'd like to thank our sponsor who brings you this message, Discover, who alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites. Discover believes there are some things you just need to know. It's just another way Discover looks out for you, not just your account. And best of all, social security alerts are free for Discover card members. All you have to do is sign up online. Learn more at discover.com slash free alerts. Limitations apply. Hey, it's Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another, and this month we're celebrating women in comedy. And this week, from the Netflix series Russian Doll, we're joined by co-creator Leslie Headland and actor Greta Lee. We challenge them to not one, but two games about real nesting dolls and fashionable food trends. Listen and subscribe now. Hello, listeners. Sam here. Abdi. Um... Got some news for you. Next week, I'll be out working on some special projects. But my friend and your friend, Elise Hugh, she's going to guest host the show. And she has a very good conversation in store for you next Tuesday. Elise will be talking with Anthony Kerrigan. A lot of you know him as the bald and lovable NoHo Hank on Barry on HBO. Hey, man. You must be Betty. I'm NoHo Hank. And, I mean, who doesn't love a bald and lovable character <laughs> anywho don't miss that chat Elise you talking with Anthony Kerrigan that will be in your feed on Tuesday all right back to the show we are back you're listening to it's been a minute from NPR the show where we catch up on the week that was I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests Sarah Halzak retail columnist for Bloomberg opinion and Dan Zak feature writer for the Washington Post hello to you both hello hi Sam uh, I want to play for you right now the number one song in the country. It's called Seven Rings by Ariana Grande. I want you both to guess how long this song is. Two minutes, 45 seconds. I was going to guess two minutes, 10 seconds. You're both close. It is two minutes and 58 seconds, mm. which is surprisingly short for a number one song in the country because for the longest time, the standard pop song was three minutes and like 45 seconds long. But a lot of pop songs today, not just from Ariana Grande, are considerably shorter than pop songs of yesteryear. And there is a reason for all of this. I learned about that reason recently through a podcast called Switched on Pop from Vox. And I actually talked with one of the show's hosts, Nate Sloan. He says most of the shift to shorter songs can be traced to one big recent phenomenon. It's Spotify and streaming in general, um, whether that's Apple, uh -huh. Spotify, another system. It's, yeah, absolutely. This new uh, way of consuming music tends to incentivize shorter songs because you only get paid per play. So, hmm. you know, as long as your song is longer than 30 seconds, which is the minimum in order to huh. get reimbursed for uh -huh. that play, it makes more sense to have shorter songs. Like well, that's as what in, Drake does. Yeah, exactly. Like, his last two or three albums are full of very short songs, but like 25 of them. Yes. Also, what you pointed out on your show, which I didn't know at all before, um, you know, Every song maker right now is hoping that one of their songs gets picked up by one of Spotify's big playlists. Like That's right. Chill Wave or Relax yes. or Workout Twerkout, yes. whatever. <laughs> and part of the algorithm that decides what songs make those big playlists looks at how often listeners 
play the whole song all the way through. Yes. And they're rewarded if listeners listen to the entire song, which is further incentive to make your song shorter. Yes. The mega producer, Mark Ronson, who's mm-hmm. worked with everyone from Amy Winehouse to Lady Gaga, recently complained about this, saying huh. that it behooves you to write a shorter song to ensure that someone will listen to the whole thing. Wow. For him, this was really concerning because it seems to be sort of compressing and and diluting, I guess, the music of today. Yeah. I want to talk about one of these shorter songs. Can you give us an example of a very short pop song hit of the moment that we can kind of break down? Totally. One, I think a great example, um, this is uh, Kanye West and Lil Pump. I love it. You're such a freaky girl. I love it. Hopefully the edited version. Yeah, this is <laughs> filthy. Girl, Let's play it. I love it. You're such a freaky girl. I love it. Well, one thing I notice is that they get to the hook right away. Yes. They're not wasting time. So how long is this song? We're looking at two minutes and seven seconds for this guy. <laughs> two minutes and seven seconds? Yeah. Is it even a song? Yeah. I'm a real freak. I need a real freak. I'm a real freak. I need a real freak. I'm a real freak. I need a real freak. And this is something we see again and again. There's there's no, uh, for lack of a better word, there's no foreplay. There's just, it's just they hit you with the chorus. Oh, and they yeah. try and grab your attention immediately and ideally keep you for another two minutes. And then do it again. You're such a freaky girl. I love it. Such a freaky girl. I love it. Are there some examples of like straight ahead pop songs that have figured out how to make a hit in these shortened constraints? Yeah. When I was young, I fell in love with you still old hands, man. That was enough. I think one example might be uh, the song East Side by Benny Blanco. Featuring Halsey okay. and Khalid. That's a big hit right now. That is, I think, is pretty short. It's still very satisfying, and it kind of copes with this by. Uh, rather than having a repetition of the final chorus, something you hear in a lot yeah, of songs. The just, resounding final yeah, rendition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This this song kind of turns its final chorus into a little coda in which everything sort of dissolves away. So I think in any point in music history, technology is both a limiting factor and also something that spurs creativity as artists try and deal with these new limitations. I'm guessing if you're having to make these songs where they need to get shorter, Mm. certain genres are better able to handle that change of song structure than others, no? Yes, and the biggest one in this this respect is hip-hop. Okay. Hip-hop really lends itself to this shortening because traditionally hip-hop just consists of two formal sections, a rapped verse section and, Mm -hmm. and increasingly a sung chorus section. Yeah. So that's a very flexible, very pliable form. You can kind of slice and dice that as you please. Yeah. What is the thing that's going away from songs that you miss the most? I think I'm already noticing that, like, 
the verses get shorter. Yeah. The second verse is even shorter. Yep. And there's no more bridge or vamp. Yes. That that is a catalog of vanishing <laughs> um, song items. Uh, for me personally, I'm a big fan of the bridge, as you mentioned. And tell folks clinically what the bridge means. Sure, sure. Say. The bridge is uh, a section that you usually get say like three quarters of the way through a song that uh, usually comes before the final chorus. It's new material that you've never heard exactly. But it takes you back to that main chorus. Yeah. What should we watch going forward? Like if we want to keep our eyes on how streaming and these new platforms are changing the craft, what should we be listening for? Yeah, I I think we'll be listening... I think form, mm-hmm. you know, the, that what we've been describing, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, mm-hmm. that's been around now for since the 1960s. You know, that's yeah. like hasn't really changed yeah. that much. When you think of all the other ways pop has changed yeah. from then to that's now. That's stayed a constant. I think that's what, you know, we as musicologists and, and just listeners are really interested in is how streaming and this new economic system is going to change the form of the song. What comes where for how long? Yeah. I will say, when I was digging through the top Spotify charts yeah. to look for short, like, straight-ahead pop songs, that new Jonas Brothers song. Sucker. Sucker. Yeah. They just start right there with the verse. We go together, better than birds of a feather, you and me. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it. They're just, like, just get in there. Yeah. Right, and it's so key because they need to grab your attention and then hold it for 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of like, you know, Vivaldi symphonies would always start with I a I hear big... us uh, drawing parallels between the Jonas Brothers and Vivaldi symphonies, and I like where you're going. <laughs> Keep going. Okay, okay. So back in the day, they would start with a big bang, like literally just this blast of sound. Which is another technological limitation. You're in a concert hall. There's no way to dim the lights. It's all being lit by candles. Everyone's talking, having a good time. How do you know the show is going to start? You get this simple crash. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, okay, now that we have your attention, here's a beautiful melody. I love it. Oh, this was delightful. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Nate Sloan, co-host of Vox's podcast, Switched on Pop. Also, a big shout-out to two reporters from Quartz, Aisha Hassan and Dan Kopp. They first wrote about this shorter pop song phenomenon. So, Dan, Sarah, my question for you both, do you feel cheated by these songwriters that they're giving you shorter songs? I'm going to say yes. Okay. You know, if we're if we're kind of placing an emphasis on hooks over stories, um, mm. you know, we don't have any time for exposition or denouement, and we only I have time for the climax. Is. What is denouement? <laughs> it's you know after the climax, like a like a, like an arc to a story, and we only yeah. have time. And if if the destination and not the journey is being thrown in your face, um, you know, maybe we're missing out on something. True. See, I'm gonna disagree. I'm gonna say that maybe it makes songs less flabby. And that it spares me from guest verses from C-list rappers. And it just distills the song (laughs) to its essence, right? And the other thing I would say about this is there's a long tradition of the economics of the business shaping Mm -hmm. the construction of songs. You know, when iTunes first came around, that was what took a sledgehammer to the album, right? Because people were buying songs a la carte. And so having a cohesive 
body of songs didn't matter as much anymore. And then the best example of this is, remember the hot second where ringtones were a thing? <sighs> there was a ringtones chart. There was. And yes. like Soldier Boy Tell Em and Mims, <laughs> This Is Why I'm Hot, were like coming out of everybody's phones. And that was <gasps> a thing. And that was shaping song construction at that time that you needed to have this, you know, zinger thing that sounded good coming out of a Nokia flip phone. <laughs> and and so, you know, I, I feel like this is just sort of an inevitable part yeah. of the pop music landscape. Yeah. Okay. It's time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game, Who Said That? I'm Sam Sanders. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Elle was swiping on Tinder one night when she discovered the problem. I was literally giving white faces a chance that I was not giving black and Latinx faces. This week, Invisibilia follows one woman's quest to get rid of her racial preferences. Hi, it's Sam again. Uh, Before we get back to the show, I have a request. If you are listening to this and you're in your 20s or your 30s, I want you to help me out because we're working on a special episode about millennials and money. There are more people in that age group, my age group, than ever before who are getting financial help from their parents. Is that you? Is it not you? Why not? Why? Tell me. Get in touch with me with your stories and your questions about the money. You know where to get at me. samsanders at npr.org. Send me your millennial money stories. Do your parents help you out? Do you help your parents out? Tell me all of it. Send me an email. You could be on the show. All right, back to this show. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm here with two guests, Sarah Halzak, retail columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and Dan Zak, feature writer at The Washington Post. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi, Sam. Now it's time for my favorite game, Who Said That? Ooh, Who said that? I share a quote from the week, and you have to guess who said that. Or at least get close, get a keyword, guess the story that I'm referring to. As you know, the winner, of course, gets absolutely nothing. Uh, You both have played this game before. Who are you putting odds on to win? Sarah, uh, you know how you know how bad. I mean, I've, like oh. I could never be on Jeopardy because I'd be so I I I might know the answer, but I'd be uh-huh. so late pressing the buzzer. It's just, just gotta not, yell it out. You just gotta I'm yell not it good out. Good at that. I get tense. Oh, <laughs> well, sending some calming CBD vibes to you right now. <laughs> All right, ready for the first quote? Yes. Here it is. Due to their environmental activism, they are reluctant to co-brand with oil drilling, mining, dam construction, etc. Patagonia. Yes. Dan's like, okay, what? Couldn't even venture a guess. (laughs) So we all know Patagonia as the clothing company that makes the iconic Patagonia vest, right? And it's come to become part of the, I guess, uniform of Silicon Valley and the tech bro and the finance bros. But this week, BuzzFeed quoted an email from a Patagonia reseller. And that quote you heard is from that email. The email suggests that Patagonia is trying to change that. Basically, Patagonia is trying not to sell versions of the Patagonia vest that have a company logo on them for companies that are, in their eyes, bad. Can I just tell you, I first saw this bubbling up on Twitter on April Fool's Day, and I was like, psh, 
April <laughs> Fool's Day joke because this is such a part of the uniform on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of become their signifier of, mm-hmm. I'm hip and cool. This is not Gordon Gecko Wall Street anymore. <laughs> um, and so uh, j- to sort of see them make this decision, I-, I just sort of had to laugh at. What is the Patagonia vest for journalists? Well, uh, sitting right by my feet is my Patagonia uh, backpack, uh, <laughs> which has seen better days, frankly. But I think dad khakis are the journalist <laughs> uniform, right? Uh, Sarah, you're up one zip. But Dan, d- don't fear. You could come back and win this whole thing, okay? I'm, I'm not going to come back okay, and win now, this whole thing. Well, with that attitude, you won't. I'm okay, rooting for you both. Hit us with it. <laughs> okay. Second quote. The waste will emerge at the surface not very different from when it was buried. It will be smushed and have been frozen and be really wet. Are we talking about like a vast reserve of human waste? I mean, yes, we are. <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> yes, sir. That is the answer. I'm going to let you have it. That seems charitable of you. Okay. <laughs> I am talking about this really weird climate change story. There are glaciologists looking at Denali, which is North America's tallest mountain in Alaska. And they're saying as climate change goes on, a lot of the ice and glaciers on this mountain are going to melt. And that is going to re-release all of the poop mountain climbers have left on Denali throughout the years. Oh, my God. Uh, And and it's it's that much poop? Well, when you're climbing a mountain that tall, there's not a restroom on the side. Good point. You poop and you say the ice and the snow will get it. We're good. But now all that ice and snow is melting. And the thing about poop that is perfectly preserved in frozen ice, when it thaws... It still smells. I thought you were going to say something like, oh, it's like Neanderthal poop. It's like prehistoric poop. That no, it's, it's like-, like your friend Mike who climbed yeah. that mountain five years ago. His poop. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. You're welcome. Uh, the game is tied one all. All right. This you ready? Is Let's settle this. Do yeah. or die, yeah. <laughs> Dan's just like, whatever. <laughs> I mean, if whatever. there was a prize, I'd be more enthusiastic. Well, you know? Maybe, you know, maybe there might be a prize if you were more enthusiastic. All right. <laughs> no, there's no prize. There's no prize. All right. Final quote. This week, I picked up a new album by Dave Matthews, prophet of the carefree joy of my high school years. Who said that? Someone He's... who went to my high school because Dave Matthews <laughs> is super ubiquitous. Uh... Um, I'm a... Oh, go ahead. I was going to guess Melania, but... It is someone involved in presidential politics, someone who's actually running for oh, president. Oh, it's Beto. Beto? No, someone else who's getting a lot of buzz Mayor right Pete. now. Pete. Yes. Wait, who got that? I think Sarah was a millisecond before me. Okay, Sarah, you won. Uh, Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, This week, journalist uncovered an op-ed he wrote for the school paper while he was an undergrad at Harvard. And he wrote this essay about how the Twin Towers falling changed the sound of the music that he loves. But uh, in that essay, he confessed to loving not just the Dave Matthews Band, but also Radiohead. And that is like peak Mayor Pete. Yeah. And and peak like sign of the times, right? Like anyone who is in high school at that age. Oh, totally. We have a millennial running for president. And this is this is, you know, this is what we're going to get. I don't know how I feel about Dave Matthews fans. Mm. They're like a step away from Wilco fans. Mm. The people that follow the band wherever they go and obsess over it. It's a little too much for me. Yeah. And like fish heads. I was just going to say, at least Mayor Pete's not a fish head, although I think. Oh, he probably is. I don't want to get you. The fish people are going to come after us and you always and the show if, if you broadcast this part. <laughs> anyway, um, 
Sarah, what are you going to do with your winnings? You won the game. Go take a victory lap around NPR headquarters, maybe? I don't know. I want to see that. I want that TikTok. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Now it's time to end the show as we do every week. We ask our listeners to share with us the best things that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. Let's listen. Hi, Sam. This is Alyssa and Brinley from Sacramento. And the best part of our week is baking together. Brinley, what are we making? Cookies. Cookies. Good morning, Sam. This is Mallory in Euless, Texas, and the best part of my week is I just made my very last student loan payment. One of my best friends and myself both got our first tattoos. I took my 16-year-old daughter, my youngest child, on her first official college visit. The best part of my week was being maid of honor for my best friend of 22 years just a month after she was maid of honor at my wedding. The best thing that happened to us this week is we booked flights to fly to America and see the grandparents. <laughs> Hello, this is Quincy in Mexico City. The best thing that happened to me this week was having my mom and stepdad come visit me in the final stop of my two-month Mexico adventure. It's been great to see them and show them around the city and country that I've come to love. Hey Sam, this is Claire from Oklahoma, and the best thing that happened to me this week is I finally got to learn how to code. I've been wanting to for a long time. Hey Sam, this is Mama Blue in beautiful San Diego. The best part of my week was that after 32 years of delivering mail, I got to retire from the U.S. Postal Service. I never have to wear blue polyester again. Hi Sam, this is Tiffany from Idaho. The best thing that happened to me this week is sort of related to a not so fun part of this week. I have surgery today and because of that, I have really seen my support system in action. People bringing over freezer meals, people taking care of my children. And I just feel so, so, so lucky. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. Keep it up. Big hey to Aunt Betty. Bye. Bye. That's nice. So nice. I want to make cookies. I want to. I would love to read the memoir of someone who was delivering mail for thirty-two years. Imagine the stories. They've probably seen some stuff and They've met a lot seen of dogs. Some stuff. Mama Blue, congratulations. Actually, congrats to all the voices and thanks to all the people you heard there: Alyssa and Brinley, Mallory, Sarah, Becky, Caitlin. Carolina and Nick, Quincy, Claire, Mama Blue, and Tiffany. If you want to share your best thing, it is so easy. Just use your smartphone, record an audio file, and then send that file to me via email at samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. We're going to go out now on the song Old Town Road by Lil Nas X. I'm making you hear it again. I know, I know. I promise. I'm almost done with it. Uh, This is a song that is a little bit country, a little bit rap, and it's confusing the folks at Billboard and in country a lot. All right, thanks to my guests, Sarah Halzak, opinion columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and Dan Zak, feature writer at The Washington Post. I hope you both enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks, Sam. Jinx. (laughs) (laughs) This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our fearless editors are Jordana Hochman and Alex McCall. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. (laughs) 